God's presence, God's people, God's purpose, God's plan. These have always been the essential ingredients of the church. We find a recording of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. That letter was the first of a two-part work, the second being the Book of Acts. In this letter, Luke recalls Jesus' ascension and commission, the spread of the Gospels, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the early church. In the past, God's presence was with His people in one place at one time. But after God outpoured His promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the power to do incredible things filled those who would receive it and overflowed to those around them. With this new Holy Spirit power, the church began to explode, stirring among thousands as the message grew and spread, unhindered. The mission of the church has been made clear by Jesus Himself. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, more than 2,000 years later, God's presence is still being unleashed among God's people, and we are part of God's continued purpose and God's continued plan as the Holy Spirit moves in and through us. Hey, Cornwall Church, I'm so glad that you're with us this weekend from wherever you're joining us. For those of you who are worshiping with us online, thanks again for being here this week. Those of you in Belize, it's good to have you uh, with Rafa and everyone down there in our Skagit campus. Thanks for being here today and uh, with Pastor Jeff down there. And for those of you right here in the room in Bellingham, uh, so glad that you're with us. Here's what I want us to do today, a little bit different. This is what I want for you. I want you to just, to just sit right back because you're going to hear a tale. It's a tale of a fateful trip that started from this Mediterranean port above aboard a kind of a, a tiny ship. Now, some of you right now, you say, oh, I know this story. I, I know that I grew up with this story. There's a boat. There's a storm. There's a shipwreck. They're all abandoned on the island. And you're right. You, you do know this story. That is the story. Not, not Gilligan's Island. That's not the story we're talking about. It's, there's a lot of similarities, though, and it's a familiar story. It's one that maybe you heard if, or are familiar with if you read Robinson Crusoe. Some similarities there. Maybe some of the movies that you've seen or some of the things in history. If you grew up in an era like I did, you may have watched the Poseidon Adventure. There's got to be a morning after. Or the Titanic, which is an event in history but also a movie as well. Or maybe it was the white squall, or, or maybe it was the perfect storm. Th these stories of a storm and a shipwreck and a maritime disaster. Well, today we're going to look at a storm, a shipwreck, a maritime disaster, survivors stuck on an island. But this story is in biblical proportions uh, because it's from the Bible. It, here's the interesting thing. It's not the only storm ship story in the Bible. Some of you are familiar with the story of Jonah and what happened, and some of that happened in the Mediterranean Sea, where we're going to be today in this story. There was at least two different storms where Jesus' disciples were on a boat, and they were scared. They thought they were going to die. It was a pretty, pretty big storm. But the storm we look at today, and the shipwreck we look at today, and the disaster we look at today eclipses those other storms in the Bible. Now, we're in this series on the book of Acts. We have been for months. We're almost done. Next week, we'll finish up the series. But we've been going through the book of Acts. 
And our series is titled Unleashed, Unhindered, Unstoppable. It's this God's story of the church. And what we will find today is that not even a storm, not even a shipwreck, not even being abandoned on an island can stop the work of God and his church from spreading. Now, Paul is at the center, center of this story. He's like the central figure, and he's going to be in a shipwreck. <laughs> Here's the unfortunate thing for old Paul. It's not his first time to be in a shipwreck, which is crazy. I mean, he writes four years before this event that we're going to look at, four years before, he writes a letter to the church in Corinth, and he's telling them about the hardships, the difficulties, the struggles that he's had in ministry. And he goes through a bunch, and one of the lines he says is this, Three times I was beaten with rods, which is a rough deal. Once I was stoned. We looked at that when he was in Lystra. You remember that? And then he writes, three times I was shipwrecked. In fact, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. He's been in three shipwrecks. One so much so that they can't even swim to shore. He's been out there floating on something for a, a day and a night. What he's basically saying to the, the church in Corinth is, listen, you see me getting on a boat? You better walk or start swimming now. You don't want to be on a boat with Paul because now this is going to happen for the fourth time. Now, if you've been with us, and if you were with us last week, you know that, that he, was, um, he was in the waiting room last week in Caesarea. And while he was there, uh, he actually was wanting to be going to Rome. That, that's where he wanted to be. He had been out throughout Asia Minor into Europe, but now he wants to go to Rome. When he was in Ephesus, we've looked at this, when he was in Ephesus, he said, I must visit Rome also. And then he writes the church in Rome, he writes them a letter, and he says in Romans 1.15, this is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. But he doesn't want to just stop at Rome. He even wants to go beyond that. I've been longing for many years to see you. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through. His plan was... He's going to go back to Jerusalem, drop off the offering, and then head to Spain and stop in Rome on the way. Little bit of a hiccup in the plan. He gets detained. He gets arrested in Jerusalem. He gets sent to the waiting room in Caesarea for two years. But when he's in Jerusalem, before he goes in the waiting room, Jesus says to him, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus said, you will get to Rome. And that's his desire. And so he wants to go to Rome. He's planning to go to Rome. But he's stuck in Caesarea. As we talked about, he's there for at least two years. Felix won't, make a, a, won't come to a verdict on his case. Festus comes in, and he appeals to Caesar. And Festus says, okay, you can go to Caesar, but I'm going to hold you here until I decide for you to go. So he's still in the waiting room. At least two years, maybe more. We don't know how long he stayed in Caesarea. But then the time came. It was the fall of the year, A.D. 59. The leaves had just started turning. There was that little bite in the air at night. The mornings were crisp and cool, and there was a little bit of fog. And this is what we read, Acts chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium about about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Now, little backstory of who's on this Mediterranean cruise. Obviously, Paul. First of all, 
Festus is the one who decided. He's, you know, that governor, and we don't know how long it was, but he finally decided they're going to go. Paul's going. But Paul's not the only one that's being sent to Rome. There are other prisoners as well. How many, we don't know. Five others? 20 others? 40 others? It could have been. And maybe Festus is saying, we don't just send people to, to Rome anytime we want. We wait until we get a, a good lot, and then we send them all together. Now, these guys have all been um, appealed to a higher court. So they've already been found guilty, and they're saying, we want, a, we want a higher appeal. Probably, for many of them, they're just trying to buy some time. It, it's a last-ditch effort. If they were already uh, considered guilty here, no doubt the emperor will probably consider them guilty. They'll probably all become slaves. If they're strong enough, they'll become gladiators, probably be torn apart in the gladiator fights or by the lions in those things for entertainment for Nero and such. There's also this guy named Julius. Julius is a centurion of the imperial regiment. Now, here's interesting. If you were with us last week, when Paul gives his story between, before Agrippa and Bernice and Festus, it said all of the Roman officers were there. Very high likelihood that Julius heard Paul tell his story. Very, very possible that Julius may have even had his interest peaked a little bit, his heart maybe convicted a little bit, longing to hear more about this Jesus that Paul talked about. And it is possible that Julius, it's a little bit of a stretch, Julius may have known Cornelius. We looked at him in Acts chapter 10, who had been a centurion in Caesarea as well. And so Julius is there. Now, Julius is not the only one escorting Paul and these prisoners. As we'll see later, there are soldiers, plural. Again, we don't know how many. If he's a centurion, it could have been up to 100 that were accompanying him. Maybe not, but it's possible. Not only that, but you have this we. Here's a little quiz for you. I know I can't hear you, but you can answer. Who wrote the book of Acts? Exactly. Dr. Luke. So Luke is going along as well. So he's not saying they, he's saying we. So he's along. And then there's this guy named Aristarchus. Aristarchus, if you've been reading through the book of Acts this, this um, summer, you'll remember that Aristarchus was a part of the whole riot that took place in Ephesus. Yeah, he's from Thessalonica. But when there was that big riot in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, and they couldn't find Paul, they take Gaius and Aristarchus, and they drag them into the theater He's had a pretty scary moment, and he's a traveling companion with Paul. Paul will reference him in two or three of his other letters as well. And many scholars believe that in order for Aristarchus to be a part of this journey, he had to become the slave of Paul. What a friend. He comes along in order to say, listen, I will be your slave to journey with me. So here's this group that's going. And off they go to Rome. Well, not so fast. Because it's not just the destination. Rome is the destination, but this story is not just about the destination. I mean, you, you heard the whole thing that life isn't a destination, it's a journey. And apparently Luke agrees with that. Because it's amazing in Acts chapter 27 and the first part of 28, how much vivid detail, how much time is, is devoted to, how extensive this tale of this journey, this, this um, voyage is. And it's, it's, it, it's, it's like this epic novel, but the reality is I think Luke gives so many details to point out this isn't just a made-up story. This isn't just an allegory. This isn't just to be seen metaphorically. These things actually happened. I was there. Paul was there. Aristarchus was there. You can ask us. We experienced these things. Now, with that, I will say 
that there are some things metaphorically we can take from this. And there'll be a few times I'll stop throughout our adventure today to look at that. So let me give you an overview and then we'll kind of walk through some of it. In order to do that, let's go to the map. I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map. Okay, they start in Caesarea. Remember, that's where he's been in the waiting room. They take a one-day journey up to Sidon. And there they have a little bit of a layover. And it says that Julius was very kind to Paul. And may, may have been a convert even. May have been a friend of Paul's. And so he lets Paul go in and visit some of the folks there. They head up this direction and they go past Tarsus, which is where Paul's from. You can imagine one day he's out there on the deck of the boat. He's out there on the starboard side and he looks out over Cilicia and Tarsus where he was raised, his childhood memories. And maybe he goes over to the port side of the boat and he looks over at Cyprus where he went on his very first missionary journey and thinks about what God was doing back in those days. And they come to a place called Mira. In Mira they stop and they get on a different boat. They find a large, large ship it's from Alexandria, which is down here in Egypt. It's from Alexandria, and it's a grain ship that's taking grain to Rome because Rome got its grain from, from Egypt. It's such a large ship that not only does it have a cargo of grain, we'll find out later, it takes on 276 passengers. Now, Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, Julius, some of the soldiers, the other prisoners, they're all a part of that number. How many of them are a part of that party? We don't know. So they set off, and they, and they struggle really slow, hard going here. And then they were planning to go across, but the winds drove them here. So they get to the leeward side of Crete, and they stop here. Now, eventually, they want to get to Rome, but as we'll see, they get out here, and they get lost out here in this big, big wind and big storm, and they're afraid of being run up on the sandbars of Syrtis. And then eventually, they'll end up in a little, little island called Malta. Now, that's where we're going to end today. Next week, we'll get them on into Rome and finish up the book of Acts. Backtrack just a little bit. They get on this large grain ship, 276 passengers. They're going along. It's really, really slow going, much slower than they anticipated. Big storm comes. They come on, this, on the leeward side of Crete. That's where we pick up verse 8. Here we go. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens. Now, those of you in Bellingham and even, even Skagit, kind of interesting. We made our way into the Bible a little bit, all right? So Fair Havens, near the town of Lassie, or Lassia, not like, good boy, good boy, what? He, Jimmy's sick, okay. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the feast. This is in the fall of the year. And from September 14th to November 11th, that was considered the high-risk danger zone to, to travel by sea. You could do it, but you're kind of taking, taking a risk. You're taking a big risk in that zone. It's kind of like, <laughs> like planning an outdoor wedding in the Northwest between September 14th and November 11th. Same kind of deal. Well, that's what's going to happen because the seas get rough. The, the, uh, the, the weather changes. <laughs> um, some of you remember, that, again, I know I date myself with these things. You'll remember, shout out to Canada, Gordon Lightfoot, years ago, sang a song called The Wreck of the Edmunds Fitzgerald. All right, it's it just this song that kind of drones on and on, tells a story, this ship, a true story, this ship that, that sinks in one of the Great Lakes. But, but the legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. Okay, that's what he's afraid of. He says, this, it's already a dangerous season, and the fast has already happened. The fast is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In the year A.D. 59, the Day of Atonement was on October 5th. 
What that means is they're somewhere later in October and it's already a dangerous season to be sailing. Goes on. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and the cargo and to our lives as also. Now, now Paul, he's been shipwrecked three times. He knows. I mean, he, he's, he's kind of seasoned when it comes to being sailing out there in those waters because he's, he's been on those back and forth on his missionary journeys. And he's warning them, like, he's the voice of reason. He's the idiot light on the dashboard. He's danger, Will Robinson. I mean, he's saying, listen, this is not good. We're, if we go now, we can, but it's going to cost us. There's going to be loss to the cargo and the ship, maybe even to our own lives. But, verse 11, but the centurion, Julius, our guy Julius, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Well, some of that you could say, well, it, it makes sense. The pilot, the captain, and the owner of the ship, they're probably putting some pressure. It, it seems that, because they're on official Roman business, it seems that Julius has the final call on this one. Not the owner of the ship. Not the captain of the ship. Julius, as the Roman centurion, he's the one that gets to make this call. And he hears what Paul says, and he likes Paul. And he probably even knows some of Paul's story, and Paul may have even expanded. Let me tell you why I'm saying this. But he's probably getting some pressure from the captain and from the owner of the ship. And he's trying to figure out, which voice do I listen to? This is kind of the conservative, it's the outlier voice. And these guys, they know what they're talking about as well. And there's this pressure. And, and, I think you can build a case for the fact that maybe of the 276 people that are on board, maybe most of them are over 65 years old. Why do I say that? Let me tell you. Since the harbor, Fairhavens, was unsuitable for winter, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. Of course, they're all snowbirds. They're going, let's go to Phoenix. There's some nice active adult, senior adult living places there. I can get a park model, a golf cart, pickleball every day. They want to go and winter in Phoenix. Of course they would do. I mean, they're all retirees. That's what you want to do, right? So they want to go to Phoenix. But here it is, this captain and the, the pilot and the owner. They say, no, 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 let's go. Don't, don't listen to Paul. Oh, if not for the courage of the fearless crew. But he says, okay. And the majority of people, the majority of them, they all want to sail too. And besides all that, it's only a 40-mile journey from Fairhavens to Phoenix. It, it's, it's a simple little Easy breezy, you might say. So they go. Verse 13. Speaking of easy breezy, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they obtained, had obtained what they wanted. That, boy, that line, that's a, this is a sermon right here all in and of itself. They thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. They thought they got what they really wanted. And maybe sometimes the things that we really want are not necessarily the things that are best. Well, as the song says, the weather started getting rough. This big old ship was tossed in spite of the courage of the fearless crew. This big ship would be lost. All right, keeps going. 
Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. And what happens is they never make it to Phoenix. It's only a 40-mile little jaunt up the coast. This wind comes, it blows them off course, and this they're out, in, out to sea. And on top of that, they begin to be buffeted and battered by this wind. They're out of control. They're at the, at the mercy of this storm. They can't even control which way they're going. It goes on, and some of this I'm going to summarize. On the second day, they start throwing cargo overboard. Like, we got we to... Gotta, like get this ship a little lighter so it rides a little higher in the water because the waves are breaking over. So they're saying, hey, you guys, with your, with your souvenirs, all the stuff you're taking home to Rome or going with it, get rid of it. They throw that over. On the third day, they start, they still haven't had any let up from this wind, the storm, the, the waves, all this. They're drifting out there. They, they, at this point, they can't even see land anymore. They start throwing the tackle overboard. Now, we're not talking about a little fishing box here with a couple lures, a little MEP spinner, a little flat fish, a little super duper, a little stink bait, little, little salmon eggs. We're not talking about a tackle box. We're talking about the rigging. We're talking about the ropes, the stuff that's essential to sail these waters. They start throwing that stuff overboard. And that was on the third day. And then there's a fourth day. And there's a fifth day. They don't have flares they're not able to send up a flare. There's no Coast Guard that's going to come looking for them. There's no way that they can, can even be rescued. Fifth day goes by. Six days ago. Seventh A full week goes by. It goes beyond. Eighth day goes by. Ninth day goes by. Tenth day goes by. It just continues on. They go day after day after day. Fast forward. Verse 20. Verse 20. It says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Neither sun nor stars. They had been sailing along the coast to navigate. When you don't have the coast, at least you could have the sun to know which way is east and west. If you don't have the sun, at least you have the stars and you can figure out where you're going. They haven't seen the sun. They haven't seen the stars. They don't know which way is up or down. They can't figure this out. They don't have radar. They don't have GPS. Compasses wouldn't be used in these waters for 1,200 more years. They're out there. They're completely lost. They don't know where to go. On top of that, the seas are so rough and it's been going on for days and they can't eat. They haven't eaten, maybe because they're seasick, maybe because it's just too rough. Again, back to the wreck of the Edmonds Israels, you know, when he says, it's too rough to feed you, you know, boys, it's been good to know you. Some of you know the song I'm talking about. But it's been going on. Or maybe they're rationing their foods. Or maybe, more likely, the food has been spoiled because the water has come overboard and they don't have much to eat. And this has been going on to the point where they've lost all hope. They're in despair. Luke is the one writing to this. And Luke said, we give up all hope of living. Probably thinking these, these men who are sailors and these men who are prisoners who are probably going to lose their lives anyway, probably thought, I, I never thought it would end this way. And thinking about, I'll never see my family. I'll never see my kids. I'll, I'll never go back to my homeland. And all this despair and all of this fear They'd given up all hope out in this storm. Well, Paul says after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them. Suddenly, Paul has this authority. Suddenly, they're looking to him. Suddenly, they're listening to him. 
he's one of the prisoners. Paul stood before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. And it's almost like you want to say, Paul, this is not the time to say, told you so, told you so. I don't think Paul's saying, told you so. I think what he's saying is, listen, you didn't listen to me before. I'm asking you to listen to me this time. You wouldn't listen to my advice. Fine. That's why we're in this mess. Will you listen to me now? And Paul comes to them with these words that I think they're a little more open to hearing. He says this, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Not one of you will be lost. Now this is kind of good news. Kind of not good news. But why and how could he say this? Let's just pause right there for a second. And let's talk about storms. Let, let me just push pause on the story. And let me talk about storms for a little bit. Because there are storms in life. Let, let's use it metaphorically. We're going to experience storms in life. Storms happen. Sometimes storms happen because we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. It's nobody's fault. Um, well, you can blame Adam and Eve. But we, we just live in a broken world and there's disasters, and there's disease, and there's death. There's, there's storms that happen. Sometimes, and some of you can speak to this, storms happen in life not because of something you did, but it's because of someone else's choices. Someone else has made decisions, and you suffer the consequences for their decisions. What your parents did, what your boss did, what your spouse did, what your friends did, and you're suffering the storm. But let's be honest. Sometimes we experience storms in life because of the decisions we've made, things we've done, decisions when we thought that we got what we really longed for, when we maybe listened to advice that was a little bit mm, not so sure. And the truth is this is that some storms can be avoided. Some storms can be avoided. And this storm that they're in, it could have been avoided. I mean, if they would have listened to Paul's voice, but Julius, he goes and he gets pressure, and he caves to that pressure. He hears the majority, and he goes with the majority. He hears what these guys who should know say. And Paul is the one, he's the outlier voice, he's the little voice. And it makes sense, and it, and it seems safe, but he goes with this, and the price tag that goes with that is very high. It could have been avoided. Uh, you know, another story, another story uh, about shipwrecks and those kind of things. If you ever read in school um, The Odyssey by Homer, when Odysseus is coming home from the Trojan Wars, he's warned about these two sirens, S-I-R-E-N-S, sirens. These creatures that are half woman, half bird. And they stand on the shores and with their music and with their voices, it's so intoxicating, it's so beautiful that it lures the sailors to come here closer, to hear more. And, and, and Odysseus is, is warned, do not go, don't, don't go because there have been so many shipwrecks, so many lives that have been destroyed because they believed, they thought this music would just draw them in 
and they thought they would be the exception. They thought it wouldn't be a big deal. They thought they would be the, this would be okay this one time. And what does Odysseus do? He puts wax in the ears of all of his sailors so that they cannot hear the song of the siren and be drawn into destruction. Beautiful story. And sometimes in our lives, we hear the voice of the majority, of the ones that we think ought to know. We feel the pressure of what everyone else is doing. We hear the beautiful, enticing, intoxicating song of the siren. And we get pulled in, and there's one voice, the Word of God, God's way. And we hear it, but no, 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 no. It's not that big of a deal. I know what I'm doing. Besides, look, everybody else is doing it. Look, our whole culture is doing this. Look, everyone's saying this is right. And it sounds so enticing. And it's that one voice. I think if we were really honest, if we looked at our lives, the biggest regrets we have in our lives, the storms that we face, the times when we have drifted, the times when we've been lost, the times when there's been destruction, the times when there's been shipwrecks in our life, are probably the times when we didn't listen to God's word. Could it be that when God says no to this or yes to this, and we think, oh, no, 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 I know what I'm doing, I know better, could it be that God loves us so much that he wants to provide for us and protect us? And could it be that he says, yes, you're gonna experience some storms in lives, but you can avoid some storms if you listen and follow my word. Go my way and follow my will. Some storms can be avoided. This storm could have been avoided. All right, back to the story. So Paul says to them, I want you all to take courage. Um, verse 23 through 25. He says, last night, an angel of the God whose I am, so key here, and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously, love this, the grace of God, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. <laughs> there is so much right here. And Paul recognizes that in the midst of the storm, God is still with him. God is right there with him. Sometimes we think, well, there's a storm. God must have forsaken me. God must have abandoned me. God must have left me. No, God is with him right there in the midst of that storm. And he knows whose he is, the God whose I am. I am his. He is my loving heavenly father. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. You know, I'm his child. And I serve him. And he hears these words that are spoken to him, that give him courage. And he says, and I have faith. I have faith that what he says he's going to do, what he says will come true, that he is good with his promises, that he falls through. And this, I think, can help us in our storms of life, and you see the grace of God here, that even the guys who made these decisions, even the ones who brought the storm upon themselves, God graciously wants them to be saved as well. Whoa, man, the grace of God's amazing. But for us in our storms, God's promises are an anchor. God's promises are an anchor to, to know, here's the truth, it's who I am, that God hasn't left me. He's right here with me. 
and his word, his truth, his promises. Those are the things I can hold on to. I, I love what Chris Brown said. Chris Brown says, there's a big difference between believing in God and believing God. Believing in God, most people, most people believe in God or a God. But sometimes we as Christians, while we believe in God, when it comes down to it, we don't really believe God. We don't hold to his words, to his truth. It's easy to believe in God. In fact, James says, even the demons believe and they tremble. But to believe God, to take him at his word, to trust him in the midst of that, that's a different story. To take these promises that we hold on to, that's why it is so important for us to have our lives rooted on the word of God, to be reading it, to be studying it, to be memorizing it, to be learning, to be growing. That's why we want you to be a part of the weekend service. That's why we want you to be in a small group so you can discuss things with others. That's why we want you on your own to be reflecting on scripture, to have the word of God. That one, maybe it's the outlier voice. Maybe it's the one voice that goes contrary to everything else. But those promises of God become an anchor for us in times of storms. And so they're going on, and for 14 days, for 14 days, they haven't seen the stars, they haven't seen the sun, they haven't been eating, uh, the winds have been raging, the, the boat is falling apart, I mean, they've already had to undergird it with cables trying to keep it together, they've thrown off the cargo, the tackle, uh, it, it's been a rough, rough go. On the 14th night, they, they hear something, they, they can't see it, but they hear something. They can sense. Maybe it's like the crashing of waves against, against a shoreline. They send down a depth. The water's getting shallower and shallower. This is good and bad. Good because they're getting close. There's land out there. They don't know where they are, but there's land there. Bad because they don't know how far and they don't want to run aground. And so they, they decide to drop some anchors to slow them down and, and, and pray for the daylight. And the 14th night, Paul again, he comes to them. And he's just, he's just got the authority on the ship. He says, guys, you need to eat. You're gonna need your strength. And maybe with whatever food they have left, they, they prepare a meal in the middle of this night so that they can all eat one last meal. And it's an amazing thing what happens when all these 276 people on board listen to Paul on this last night on this boat. Look at this. After he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Together, there were 276 of us on board. Little side note. He took the bread, he gave thanks for it, and he broke it. Seems like I've heard that somewhere before. Oh, when Jesus fed the 5,000, he took bread, he gave thanks for it, and he broke it. And Luke records that in his gospel. At the Last Supper, Jesus with his disciples, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. Luke records that in his gospel. On the death day of the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, they get to Emmaus, and Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. 
Luke records that in his gospel. And could it be, just telling you, I don't know, but could it be the reason he uses this uh, sequence of, of events is that when Paul is there with 276 who are desperate, they're, they're filled with despair and fear, they're going to lose their life, that maybe he takes the bread and he talks about Jesus being the bread of life. And he gives thanks to God for his grace. And he breaks it and talks about what Jesus had done for every single one of them. Could it be that that meal was an opportunity where Paul shares the good news of what Jesus had done for each of them. Well, they're all encouraged. And after the meal, they throw all the grain overboard. This must have been terribly difficult for the, for the boat owner, but this was his livelihood, but it's, it's this or, or die. They throw all the grain over. And then some of the soldiers, plural, not Julius, the soldiers want to kill the prisoners, plural. So if they escape, then they have to take on the punishment of the escaped prisoner. Julius says, no, no, I like Paul. I'm not going to kill him. And so when day breaks, they see an island. They don't know what island is. It doesn't matter. It's, it's like, whoa, land ho, let's go. Not so far. There's a sandbar. This is what's going to happen. They're going to run their ship aground. But before they can, they hit a sandbar that they couldn't see. And the waves are smashing against the boat, and it's beginning to fall apart. And they're saying, we've got to get off of this boat they get the instruction, anyone who can swim, swim. We'll see you at the shore. Everyone else, grab a plank, grab a keg, grab a chair, grab something that floats, start kicking that way. And away they go onto this island that they've never, they, they don't know what it is. Verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out the island was called Malta. Malta. Now here's the cool thing about this. And if I had time or if Kip was preaching this, he'd go into the Greek on this of how this was actually phrased that the word Malta means refuge, which is so fitting. The island is a refuge for them. They've been for 14 days out lost on the sea, wet, cold, hungry, desperate, hopeless. And they come to this refuge. This, this island, even if it was called Gilligan's, was a refuge for them. And what they experience is amazing. Verse 2. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. I mean, you can imagine the islanders, they see there's a boat out on the shore. It's shipwrecked there on the, on the sandbar. And there's all these people swimming ashore and people kicking on paddle boards. And there's 200, there's all these guys. And they go down and they build this fire and they're showing them great kindness. We don't know who these guys are. They don't even speak our language, but we show them great kindness. We build a fire. They, they probably fed them as well. If so, that would have been the first Malto meal. All right. I just had to throw in a dad joke just for some of you. I know, groan, go ahead. All right. All right. You're welcome. Okay. So they feed them. Here they are by this fire. Must have been a big fire or multiple fires because there's 276 of them. Paul goes out and he's just an active servant. He's, he's putting wood on the fire. He's getting some brush. And when he does this, there's this snake. Now, remember, we're into late October, early November. Snakes kind of go into this lethargic state. The warmth of the fire wakes the snake up and it comes and it clamps on this viper, clamps on to Paul's hand. And everyone sees this. Not a good thing. Poor Paul, I mean, he's gone through enough already. Now he's got this snake hanging off his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, 
For though he escaped from the sea, justice, capital J, this isn't justice as a rule, this is justice, the goddess justice, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off, the, off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Okay, again, if you've been with us in this series, this is like the antithesis of what happened in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, you remember? They thought they were gods, Zeus and Hermes. They thought, we should worship him, he's a god. They find out he's not, they think he should die. The exact opposite happens in Malta. He's a murderer, he should die. He doesn't, oh, we should worship him, he's a god. It's, it's kind of funny, it's the, it's the negative version of that whole thing. And he shakes this snake off, and they're all like, he's gonna die, he's gonna die. He must be a murderer. Again, this is speculation on my part, but I've got to believe if you followed us through this, that any time Paul gets a chance to tell his story, he does. And what if? What if he says, you, you think I'm a murderer? I am. I was. I used to kill these followers of Jesus. You think I deserve to die? Justice would say I should die. But grace says I get to live. I can shake that death off. That I can have life. And I wonder if he just shares this truth that it's by grace we're saved. I wonder if he takes them down the Roman road. You see, we've all sinned. We've all been bitten by the, the snake of the, the death penalty of, of the serpent, of the enemy, of sin, of, of the punishment. The justice would say we all die. But you know what? Because of what Jesus has done, we shake that off. We shake that off and we live. I wonder if he, he just said, you know what? Here's an opportunity to, to share with these people from Malta. I mean, they're, they're hearing the gospel because we went out in a storm and we got shipwrecked and, and even God is redeeming this for his purposes. It's an amazing thing. And the islanders are kind and they love these guys. And, and the grand poobah of the island is a guy named Publius. And this is what it says about his dad. His father, um, his father was sick in bed suffering from fever and dysentery. There's a thing called Malta fever. It happens from microbes in goat milk, probably what was going on. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. Okay, I, I, I'm kind of like, kind of like out of time, but let, let, me just, let me just say this one little thing. Healed and cured are two different words, two different things. Paul prays, and God does a miraculous healing on Publius' dad. Everybody else comes that are sick, and they're cured, not healed. Who's writing this? Dr. Luke. That what we see here is that this shipwreck out here is the first mercy ship that's ever gone out. It's the first medical missions trip that's ever taken place. And Luke, God uses Luke in this situation to bring about practical help. And how could it be anything else but for them to say, we want to hear more about this. And they stay on the island. And I've just got to believe with the track record of what God has been doing with his unleashed, unhindered, unstoppable movement of the Holy Spirit, and using Paul in all of these regions, I've got to believe that a church was planted on Malta.
Well, around February, it says this. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. Now, that's where we're going to stop with the story. We'll pick up there next week, and we're going to finish off his journey to Rome and the book of Acts next week, so don't miss that. But this is what I want to say, and this is what I, I want us to, to really just kind of hone in. That God's unleashed, unhindered, unstoppable plan can't even be thwarted by a shipwreck or a storm or poor decisions. And the truth is this, that God's purposes are unstoppable. And you can say, well, yeah, on a cosmic level, we, we get that and we believe that. Yes, yeah, true. And in the Bible, we see that and we get that. Yes, in your life and my life, God's purposes are unstoppable. And I want to say this. Hear me out. Even if there are storms that you can avoid and you choose to go into them anyway, even if you bring some of that on with your poor decisions, with, with your sin, God can still redeem things. Now, you're going to suffer some loss. You're going to suffer some pain you didn't have to, but God can still redeem that. Whatever you've done in your past, God can still redeem and work. His plans are unstoppable. And whatever anyone else has done to you or that you've suffered, God's plans and his purpose are unstoppable. Let me just say this, and then I'll be done. Honest, honest. Let me just say this. When we are facing storms in our life, first remember, there are some storms that can be avoided if we'll walk God's way in his word and his will. Okay? And that's what I long for all of us. I long that for, for me, for all of us. But when there are storms in our life, what we can learn from Paul's experience is this. In the midst of those storms, that God continues to work. Job, who went through unbelievable storms, he says this, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. God, you can still work. Here it is. And if you'll let me alliterate like a pastor, let me just do this. In the midst of our storms, in the midst of our storms, hold on to God's promises. Hold on to his truth. Hold on to his word. Those are the anchor. Hold on to God's promises. Remain in the presence of Christ and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. God's promises, Christ's present, the Holy Spirit's power, that we could live that way. And what if, in the midst of the storms, there's still storms, but if we're holding on to those promises and we're living in that presence and we're dwelling in his power, God can take the worst storm and make it a perfect storm for his purposes for his glory. And that's how we can live. So, thanks for sitting right back and hearing this tale. A tale of a faithful trip that showed a faithful God.